Hello and welcome to the Uncommon Knowledge Podcast. I'm Emily. And I'm Rachel. And this week we're joined by Emily Knight, who is a DPhil student here at Oxford in the History of Art. She also works part-time at the Oxford Research Centre in the Humanities, or TORCH. And her thesis is on posthumous portraiture in the 18th and 19th centuries. And she's here today to talk to us about a part of that project, uh, and I think is going to say something about death masks. Yes. So what is a death mask? A death mask is a cast of a deceased person's face. So it was a practice that extends right back to the ancient world, but reached its height of popularity in the 18th and um, 19th centuries. And essentially, a sculptor would take a mould of a dead person's face and a cast would be made from that. This is how we use the term now. The term has slightly shifted over time and um, in the 19th century it was sometimes referred to as a cast taken after death. There are various different ways of describing it, but in its present day usage, the death mask refers to the original cast. Um, yeah, this is a part of my research into posthumous portraiture and I'm looking at death masks, in particular how they were displayed, um, how they were used, and the sorts of people that collected them at the time and have since collected them. So I'm particularly interested in how people encounter encountered these objects um, in the late 18th and early 19th century. And how did people encounter and encounter them? Um, well, it, it depends very much on what the uh, purpose of the death mask was. So if it was being used uh, by an artist, that would be much more of a kind of technical encounter. They would take a death mask immediately after someone had died and would use that to create a posthumous portraiture, perhaps in conjunction with a portrait that was painted or sculpted during life. Uh, but in the early 19th century, the pseudoscience of phrenology really took off. And this was much more about um, death masks being scientific objects in that people would look at them and judge the character of that person by the lumps and bumps on their head. So certain features of your cranium allegedly told told these phrenologists what uh, what your essential character was. Uh, so that purpose is very different. So the encounter would be much more as if this was a kind of biological specimen. So they were often sculpted onto bases or displayed on shelves or in drawers. So you'd pull them out like a uh, like you might do, yeah, I don't know what, so like, like, like a curiosity. Yeah, exactly, um, like a sort of curiosity, yeah. and then they'd be measured and assessed and felt and things. Um, but then there is this other trend, and this is something that I focused on quite a lot, um, where death masks were used more as commemorative objects. So uh, Sir Walter Scott's death mask in particular, um, I find incredibly fascinating because it very clearly marks this sort of intersection of art and science and kind of emotion and exactitude and things. And the way that the death mask was originally displayed um, was in a turret in his house in Scotland, in Abbotsford. And you would walk into this very small space and it's the only thing displayed on a tabletop. And unusually it was cast in bronze, so it's this kind of very honorific material. But then when you look over the top of it, it has a huge scar across his cranium. Um, and this is where they took out the brain for post-mortem examination. Oh. And uh, this is very kind of summarily published. And the one of the most prominent phrenologists in the UK at the time, a man called George Coombe, who founded the Edinburgh Phrenological Society, was dismayed at how little information was provided um, 
because you couldn't put, you couldn't kind of come up with some sort of assessment of his inherent character with such limited information. So I'm interested in the fact that this was both a kind of scientific object for some people and a kind of honorific celebratory relic almost for others. Had Walter Scott anticipated or, or wanted that kind of study done after his death? Not that I know of, and that's often the problem with looking at uh, these death masks. It can be very difficult to find out uh, who requested them and where they were originally kept. Uh, part of that issue, which is what anyone who works with casts will know, is that there are various versions of the same thing. So there are numerous versions of Walter Scott's death mask. This is the only one that's in bronze, uh, but there are various versions of it in plaster and there's one in Edinburgh which is plaster painted to look like bronze. Um, so no, I don't know if he was part of that. I think it's no coincidence that he lived in the borders and Edinburgh was really the original centre of phrenology. Um, but it wasn't wasn't displayed in that sort of way. It was very much displayed as a commemorative monument to him. With these different casts, are they all taken at the same time? I mean, are they all taken from one uh, original cast or are they uh, created separately? Yes, in general, they were taken at different times. Not always, but largely. Uh, again, this would depend on the situation of uh, the original death mask being taken, whether it was being used for uh, a posthumous portrait by an artist, in which case they would probably want to hold on to that death mask because they then have something that's quite prized. Uh, but again, in the kind of 18th century, when this whole idea of celebrity is uh, growing and into the 19th century, where part of the phrenological interest is in what makes someone a genius or what makes someone a kind of terrible criminal. Um, so at that point, people would share casts, casts be remade, people would submit requests to have casts remade so they could, again, assess those facial features to come to some sort of conclusion about the person. And was it primarily celebrities and, and criminals of whom they were taken? Were they the people of particular interest? I mean, certainly in the 19th century, um, when phrenology really took off, before that time, it was, well, in the 18th century, it was almost exclusively within the UK of men. Um, I found a few references to ones being taken of women, uh, but those death masks I haven't been able to track down. Uh, but almost entirely it was of men of great note. So whether they were politicians like William Pitt or Spencer Percival, or they were artists like the portrait painter Thomas Lawrence, or musicians or writers, whatever it might be, it was generally someone of note. So where you might buy a print of a famous person, you might also want to acquire one of these death masks. But in the 19th century, with phrenology, um, you do then find them of women and you find them very occasionally of children too. And normally it's because they are a child prodigy or they um, have demonstrated some kind of incredible talent. But then you also get a lot of murderers. So the famous Edinburgh murderers, Burke and Hare, um, there was life and death masks. There was a death mark of Burke because Hare managed to escape. Um, but there was a life mask of Hare. So these... Uh, were then used again just to work out what it was that made those people, these kind of hardened criminals who would kill people on request. And then that information was used to determine who was a criminal in life as well? or Yes, yeah. I mean, I think it was a way, uh, I guess it ties into 
this sort of idea of wanting to have a kind of taxonomy of the human face. Um, I don't know that it was ever used to decide in advance of a crime whether someone was capable of committing it. Uh, I think it was more of a way of kind of in, yeah, interpreting um, what it was that made those people the way they were. Uh, why weren't there so many death masks of women, do you think? Uh, it's a really interesting question. It's something that I have spent quite a lot of time thinking about. I've come across a few requests to have death masks taken, uh, in particular that of Princess Charlotte, who was George IV's ill-fated daughter who died um, in childbed, age 21. And in her biography, the author writes that the request was quite properly refused. So I started to think, well, maybe this is something about ownership or propriety. Um, but there's no concrete evidence to say why. It's much more of a kind of assumed, um, uh, a kind of assumed knowledge that this is not something that you did. I've also come across a reference to the Duchess of Devonshire's death mask, which was taken by Nollikins and referred to in a diary written by Joseph Farrington. And I haven't been able to track this down at all. Uh, Chatsworth isn't, a, they're aware of the reference, but they don't know where that death mask is either. And the difficulty with finding these things is that if they appear at auction, if they appear in someone's sale, it's often just grouped together like three death masks and it doesn't identify who those are. So to track them down can be very difficult. So I was also thinking, well, I wonder why I can't track this one down. Maybe it's because it's something that was valued then, but then was considered a weird, curious, macabre object later and was destroyed. Um, so I've been playing around with all these different ideas as to why that might be the case, because you do sometimes get it in Europe with people of a similar social standing. Uh, so I'm not really sure why there are so few, but I imagine that it has something to do with women's role in society, the idea of um, men having some ownership over their image and that somehow there was something that wasn't um, appropriate about passing around an image of someone of a particular social standing. And the ones that were taken for more commemorative reasons, I mean, how would people display them in their homes? Would they be on display or would they be taken out at particular times? Mm. Again, it can be quite a hard thing to work out because you only very occasionally get written accounts of people encountering death masks. Um, one of the death masks that I find particularly interesting in this regard is the death mask of Thomas Lawrence because that was cast in bronze and sculpted so that you had his full head lying on a pillow with a bed shirt and a cover covering him. Lovely terrifying. That, <laughs> it is slightly terrifying. Well, it's sort of terrifying, but he just does sort of look like he's sleeping. There are very terrifying ones where they look incredibly gaunt, maybe their lips have curled inwards, but this one he does sort of look like he's sleeping. And this was placed in a box with a lid, and in the lid there's a mezzotint of his final unfinished self-portrait. And there's also a compartment which displays a lock of his hair, his chalk, his pencil, his stubs. Um, so it's this kind of wonderful performative process. You lift this lid where you see this image of him in life and then you encounter his dead face beneath. And it has traces of the tools he used and even the kind of abject, abject remains of him with this lock of hair. So I've always imagined that with that, it was owned um, by his descendants. Uh, we don't know who commissioned it, but we know it was in the family and that he that maybe they brought it out on occasions 
and then they would lift the lid and they'd look in. As I say, there is no account of that, but I imagine the fact that there was this performative element to it meant that, yeah, people would bring it out and discuss it, maybe reminisce, mm. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Do we know who was taking these casts and um, how, how it happened? Yes, um, not always, but there are a few occasions. Um, so we know, for example, that uh, Joseph Nolikens took William Pitt's death mask, and there are accounts in his biography where um, the author writes how he was kind of always at the ready. If ever there was a sort of notable death, he'd be there ready mixing his plaster. And we also know that the, the day before um, the execution of William Burke, um, there's a reference in the Phrenological Archive in Edinburgh um, where they are submitting a request to have first access to the body the following day um, and that they had a, uh, a sculptor ready and waiting, waiting who could come and take that death mask straight away. Um, so there are sometimes accounts of who it might be, um, but that's not always the case. <laughs> and what did, materials did they use? Um, largely they were cast out of plaster. Um, there was a book published in the 1920s, first in German and then in English, by a man called Ernst Benkard. And in that there is some advice from a moulder who took these death masks where they describe the process of doing it. So he describes how you tilt the body back and how you put on the initial layer of plaster, then you put a strengthening layer of plaster and then you kind of split it and take it off and reform it. and and fill it with plaster. Um, so that is normally the way that you see them. But there are also instances that I mentioned before where they're cast in bronze as with Scott or they're made to look like bronze. But again, it slightly depends on the uh, function and kind of intended place of display afterwards. What's quite interesting about the Walter Scott death mask that was painted to look like bronze is that it's not on display within the um, Medical Museum in Edinburgh because it doesn't kind of fit the mould. He's um, no fun. Um, it looks very different to the others and there is something quite impressive and a bit eerie about seeing a line of these um, perfectly white plaster faces and to have one that looks that's also very old, that looks like it's um, made out of bronze, but isn't, doesn't quite suit that. So it's quite interesting to think curatorially what people do and the impact they want them to have and how that means that other objects, which are perhaps even more interesting, can get pushed away and, and, and stored elsewhere. Marginalised in some way, yeah. Mm -hmm. Did different countries, yeah, I guess you're focusing on England mostly, but did yes. different countries also um, engage in the same practice? Yes, they did. Um, yeah, they absolutely did. Um, so in Germany, you get it quite a lot as well. Um, I'm focusing, as I say, specifically on Britain, but it is certainly European practice. And I think that some of their rules and ideas um, of the type of people that could be represented using a death mask were perhaps a little bit different. So one example is um, Princess Louisa of Prussia, um, who had a death mask taken. And if you think about a corresponding example in Britain, Princess Charlotte, the kind of ill-fated daughter of George IV, in a bi biography that was written after she died, it said that a request was made to take a death mask, but it was quite properly refused. 
So there must have been a slightly different understanding or perception of what these death masks meant elsewhere in Europe. Why do you think, I mean, was it the phrenology that made it, you know, when that theory developed, was that what made this come into fashion or was there something else that made it um, a popular thing to do? I think particularly in the 19th century it was. Um, it was a practice that extended much beyond that. Even There are even some ancient examples. So I think the 19th century really marked a shift in the way that people were treating these objects and that did tend to be the primary focus. It wasn't exclusively the focus. There was an American collector called Lawrence Hutton who amassed a collection of kind of 100 pieces, which is now kept at Princeton. And he wasn't interested in them as phrenological objects, but was interested in them as a sort of extreme portrait. So he fixed hooks into the back of all of the death masks and hung them up on his wall and referred to it as his portrait gallery, which seems like an incredibly weird thing to, for us to think about nowadays. But for him, this was the kind of ultimate portrait. He couldn't get closer to the person than this. And that for him was his interest. It wasn't about reading into their personality by the shapes of their heads and noses and faces. But I guess if all of that is also uh, sort of ingrained within the face, then personality and appearance are also inextricably entwined in that way. You get someone's personality, but a visual, a visual sort of depiction of it. Yes, that's true. And I think there are certainly instances where people talk about how close they think it is to the real person. And there were things that affected that particularly when it came to a cast that was several casts down the line. It's a softening of the image and it's not really that exact. There are also instances where people would carve back in to the death mask to open the eyes or they would sculpt extra bits like the Lawrence death mask where it looks like they're sleeping. Um, so they are, they can be very varied. What do you think made it go out of fashion? I think one of the key things um, is the invention of photography. They don't die out when photography comes in, but their level of production is certainly reduced. And of course, you get Victorian post-mortem photography. I don't know if you've seen those, but those are really quite terrifying, where they might, um, if a child and a family died, they might have a family photo and prop up the child dressed in normal clothes. Oh. Um, so it's a similar sort of trend it's a very that's their final image on us before their body starts to waste away and i think when that practice becomes popular people's interests in death mass declines as i say it doesn't disappear completely but i think that was a key moment um in the in the reduction of the number of death masks that were produced do people still take death masks there are a few 20th century <laughs> examples i think i mean it's not a death mask i think the closest uh, the closest thing to it in recent years is Mark Quinn's uh, blood head. I think that's the closest that we get. Um, but yeah, there are some 20th century examples. I guess it's one of those things where someone might do it, but it's not common practice. An eccentric individual <laughs> yeah, who requests exactly. a death mask after they die. Exactly. Yeah. Would you ever have a collection of, of the whole families? I haven't come across that. It might well be the case. I think you're you're perhaps more likely to come across collections of particular types of people but I certainly haven't found um, a family where there's a complete set of death masks. No. I was thinking about how in ancient Rome distinguished families would have mm -hmm. um, masks of their 
various distinguished ancestors and get them out for funerals and so on. So you could see yeah. the whole line of someone's descent. Yeah, exactly. And I think, you know, they, they, they come right back to those moments in ancient Rome. Um, but no, not in the same way. I think it was much more a celebration of that particular, when they were used for commemorative purposes, a celebration of that particular individual. Did people have the kind, you know, any unease about the practice? Were there people who found it morbid or...? I think the main issue came with how quickly they had to be taken. The idea was that you should get get there as soon as possible because as soon as the body starts to stiffen, it becomes much more difficult to take a cast of someone's face. So, and you can really tell that in some of those casts where someone looks very gaunt um, and it very much looks like a dead face that's probably been dead for a couple of days. After that point, it becomes very difficult to take one and probably a very unpleasant experience. There are some accounts of family members who were just quite disturbed by how quickly someone might come to take the, the death mask. So it very much depends on the situation. But I think death was so much more part of the fabric of everyday life than it is nowadays in the West. Nowadays, it's much more a removed part of our lives it's not often that people die at home it's much more hospitalized and so I think what now we think to be very morbid might not have seemed morbid at all mm. if you were if it was common practice for people to die at home and particularly with high rates of infant mortality and things it was in no way easier but just more frequent especially if I guess if it's a celebration of of them it's not disrespectful to sort of be interfering with the body because it's it is in fact a gesture of of respect if if it is a celebrity or something like that yes um, yeah exactly but you can still imagine it being disturbing if you were sort of saying goodbye mm. to your beloved family member and suddenly there's someone who wants to cover over their face with plaster definitely be... definitely and i imagine in those occasions that they wouldn't be present in the room no. i mean I'm, I'm guessing there but i imagine that would probably be the case because if there's a sculptor thinking, great, I've got the Prime Minister's face, I'm going to make loads of money from this because it's a bus I can keep repeating and everyone will know it's come from the death mask. And then you're a family member, devastated the loss of someone close to you. Um, you know, that would that would be distressing, yeah. <laughs> How long do they normally take to, to make? I think they would produce relatively quickly. Um, I don't know of any particular accounts, but I imagine within an hour or so. Do you think that the survival of you know most of these death, ma death masks has been affected by the fact that people who perhaps inherited them later went Ooh, yuck and just chucked them? I mean, how many have survived? Um, well, there are quite a few collections of them. The main ones are in Edinburgh, the Phrenological Society's collections, which are in the hundreds. And the other collection is at Princeton, and that also has about 100 different life masks and death masks and casts of hands um, so they're the two main repositories but there are other ones but the other I think part of the reason that they don't always survive is that they are incredibly fragile they're made out of plaster if a shell falls they're broken into a million pieces if there's a fire or as was the case in one museum in Germany which was totally bombed during the war they all go um, plaster yeah it's an incredibly fragile substance and since this is the material that they are largely made out of they don't necessarily survive the test of time unless they are preserved and stored and displayed appropriately and that says a lot about shifting values 
um, how people have valued death masks over time and the priorities that or lack of priority that they've had. Are there a lot of private collections of death masks currently? Um, I'm not aware of any large ones. I think there are people who may have several, but I'm not aware of a large private collection. Do you think the problem with the Princess Charlotte request was that, was it, was it the idea of her face then being sold, you know, multiple times over by the sculptor who did it? Or like, was it, yeah, the inability to control or? It could have been that, but at the same time, numerous prints of the princess were published after she died. Um, and she doesn't look dead in them. She looks living or she it's an image of an apotheosis or she's generally in a kind of celestial setting. So her image was passed around, but I don't know if there's something in the fact that her eyes be closed, she couldn't engage. I'm not quite sure what it is, but I think there is something in the appropriateness of um, this sort of passive image, I guess. Um, something in that that made it something that should be refused and wasn't, wasn't seen as an appropriate thing for Princess to have done. Do we know how any sort of people who are about to be hanged or so on felt about the fact that they would soon be an exhibit? Did they ever express, I mean, you know, I guess in the larger scheme of things, being hanged is your bigger problem. But... Mm -hmm. <laughs> no, I haven't come across that. Um, no. And I think that I don't know whether they would have, you know, I guess it depends on the crime, but I think you know, the crime of murder and stuff, they probably aren't given, they probably weren't given the opportunity to write any kind of reflections beforehand. And I haven't come across any accounts of conversations immediately prior to their execution. Um, so no, I think it's been much more about people requesting, the evidence that I found has been much more about people requesting death masks to be taken or people um, displaying those and responding to them. I was thinking about um, an Aboriginal woman in Tasmania, she was thought then to be the, the last Tasmanian mm -hmm. and she was having watched what had happened to uh, various of her relatives whose skulls and, and body parts had been taken off and studied mm -hmm. she was so anxious um, mm -hmm. before she died about what would happen to her body and, and begged and pleaded mm -hmm. for them not to mm -hmm. treat it as a scientific specimen which of course they did anyway. Yes. I suppose yeah. not that many people, she was in a sort of unique position to anticipate that, mm -hmm. I suppose. Yes, and I also, I guess the thing with the death mask is you're not removing anything from the body. You're not in any way disturbing the body. Mm. Um, you're taking a cast and it's that cast. It's the imprint of the body as opposed to the body itself. So I think that in terms of the fear of having one taken after you died, I think it's a slightly different fear because you wouldn't, yeah, it's not your body being destroyed or cut up or experimented on, it's, it's an imprint of it. I was thinking it's interesting with the Walter Scott one that they chose to, I mean, surely they could have removed the scar from the, but the, why do you think they chose to? Yeah, I've thought that? a lot about this, particularly on this particular one, because in some of the other casts, it is smoothed over. But what makes that quite a strange thing to look at is that by removing the brain from his skull and by leaving it huge scar across the top of it it slightly altered the shape of his head so when you see carved uh, casts which are smoothed over where the scar was his head looks incredibly elongated and weird um, and again people would kind of read into his unusual head shape and was like well it's probably because you know he'd had 
his whole brain opened out after he died and then sort of put back together. But I have definitely thought that with this particular bronze version of the cast at Abbotsford, because it is very much displayed in a commemorative way and it's cast in bronze. It is supposed to be this memorial. It's also cast in bronze and placed on a bronze cushion to heighten the idea that it is a, that it is a secular relic. So why they left that big scar, I don't know. Perhaps it was just emphasising the truthfulness of the image in front of them. And I guess if there's an interest in scientific study as well, you kind of get this idea that mm -hmm. it's a relic of scientific, a scientific experiment having taken place. Yes. Um, yeah. Meta-science. Meta <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> yes, I guess, yeah, I think that's probably the case. And if people knew that this post-mortem took place, and so to remove it would somehow mess with the whole idea that this is an authentic image. Why, why did they have to be death masks? Wouldn't a mask taken in someone's life be equally revealing and valuable? Yes, they, there were also life masks, and that's not something that I'm focusing on, but that certainly is the case. Um, and particularly when it comes to phrenology, you do get life casts in particular. Um, so again, you have a life mask of William Hare, um, William Burke's co-partner in all of their um, murderous escapades. Um, so you certainly do get life masks um, and you do also get life masks and also casts of hands of people that have shown some sort of incredible talent or genius um, about something. But I think there is something in that very final image of that person that gave the death mask a particular currency that life mask didn't necessarily have. It was the very first trace you know, you think about this idea of kind of index and photography being a kind of fleeting moment that's caught and it's there's quite a lot of scholarship on this that um this is a final trace it's a footprint in the sand before their body disappears why hands why were, why were they interesting because i think often that was an artist's hands or a writer's hand and it was the sort of output for their genius so I think that's what gave these the hand extra extra currency. There's no sort of palmistry happening or anything like that. Uh, not that I'm aware <laughs> of. Well, most often they're sort of curled over. I mean, Thomas Lawrence had one. The Brownings had one, and the the hand is often slightly closed, almost not quite, but almost as if he's holding a paintbrush. So I think it is the 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 output of his genius, which is why you might have had a hand cast. And this was, of course, something that became very popular in the Victorian age. Queen Victoria had casts of legs and feet and arms of all of her children and things. So that, uh, and they were, they were taken from life. So I think this idea of isolated body parts is a whole other question and a whole other area of research, but it is something that particularly comes to the fore in the, in the 19th century. Makes it sound more like medieval relic mm -hmm. taking mm -hmm. the various body parts. Yes, yeah, definitely. But making that um, comparison to relics is an important one, I think, particularly when you're thinking about encountering them and displaying them. And the fact that there are several of them which are cast um, onto pillows, they are made to look like relics. And when you approach them, um, you certainly have that similar sort of encounter. So why is why is Scott's uh, death mask so sort of 
uh, prominent and on display? Well, I think I referred earlier to it being a bit like a secular relic that you encounter in the same sort of way you might encounter a religious relic. Um, and what's really interesting is that in the centenary exhibition devoted to Scott that was held in Edinburgh, um, they displayed all of these various items from his collection. Um, so things that he used, things that he collected, things that they, he bought, and also his death mask. And in the catalogue, it says that nothing excited greater interest than the original mask. So there was something in this closeness to Scott, this kind of authenticness of the death mask that people found really fascinating. And what makes that for me doubly interesting is that Scott himself collected all of these relics from Scotland's past. Um, so whether they were Body Prince Charlie's oat cake or someone else's sporran or sword, <laughs> his house was this incredible correct collection of kind of microcosm of Scotland's past. And then the way that he is commemorated is in a similar sort of way. Um, and the death mask uh, is part of that. In this case, it wasn't the, the bronze one that was displayed. It was a plaster version of it, um, the original one. And as I say, yeah, this was the thing that people got most excited about they found most fascinating amongst all of these other, um, all this kind of Scott paraphernalia that filled the rest of the exhibition. And are death masks appealing because they can tell us something about attitudes towards death or is it something else? Yes, I think so. And it's something that I think about all the time with my research, both with regards to death masks, but also different type of posthumous portraits. Um, and I think about what it says about people's attitudes to the loss of someone else, their attitudes to their own death. Um, there's, an, there's some literature on this idea that the death mask um, wasn't really about showing that person, that wasn't the main importance, it was that it instantly made you reflect on your own mortality. I definitely think there's something in, there's a level of comfort in commemorating other people because you then know that you yourself will be commemorated in a sort of way. So the thought of death is somehow a little bit less terrifying because it's not just total annihilation on earth. Um, there are things that, um, there are ways that you continue to be remembered, whether that's through portraiture, whether that's through literature, literature whatever it is. I think that death masks and posthumous portraiture in general are one way of people feeling like their impact on earth is still going to be remembered after they've died. It's kind of interesting that it's both sort of a memento mori and also a form of immortality. Yes. Um, it's doing two it things at once <laughs> which kind of contradict each other. But, yes. Um, yeah, no, I think that I think that is very interesting. They, they definitely work in different ways and that's why I find death masks such a fascinating thing. They kind of teeter on the boundary of so many different things and, you know, whether it's art, whether it's science, whether it's um, emotion, whether it's commemoration, whether it's, you know, scientific specimens, they, they just cover so many different things and the setting is so important to how they're interpreted and how we continue to interpret them today. They, they offer a kind of intimacy, don't they? Like it's a moment when someone dies, it's normally privately or, you know, surrounded mm -hmm. by family and mm -hmm. I don't know, maybe there's something appealing about the idea that that you enter into that person's private world by seeing them at that vulnerable mm -hmm. moment. Yes, definitely. I think it sort of zooms in on that moment of death. It's not a portrait which, including other figures, 
it's very much that person on their own and there isn't that sort of engagement that you get with a living portrait you know if you look directly at a living portrait and their eyes are open there's a sort of engagement happening there's a sort of return of your gaze but when it's a dead person's face there's not that same reciprocal thing that's going on so it is a very different experience i think are there any ideas about the departing of the soul from the body that are reflected in the death masks no i think that is a really interesting point and it's not something that i have focused on because i think death masks very much focus on the physicality of someone this idea that it's the final trace of the human body on earth so i think the idea of a soul escaping that would certainly fall into um religious texts sermons perhaps literary responses but I think death masks are inherently concerned with the physical. This has been so interesting um, in so many ways. So many questions. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's so interesting to talk about it and get your thoughts on it. Well, thank you so much for joining us on the, on the podcast. Um, as usual, you can find out more um, about death masks on our blog, which is uncommonknowledgeoxford.wordpress.com. Uh, we'll probably have some pictures. Yep, I'll send some of those on. Excellent. <laughs> Thanks for joining us. Thank you very much, Emily.